Uh, Dr. Bill Takeshta is a low vision specialist from the Center for the Partially Sighted, and we're always delighted to have him with us. He has uh, one of the greatest uh, skills of, of anyone in the field of low vision, and he's done a lot of terrific work with a lot of people. And then, ironically, several years ago, he began to lose his own vision. He has a uh, retinal degenerative problem, and Dr. Takeshita is functionally blind now. So he brings to us a wonderful combination of being a doctor who knows how to help you with, and being a patient who knows what it's like to live with low vision. He's going to be speaking with Janice Goldhaber, who's also at the Center for the Partially Sighted. If you don't know about that organization, you should really check them out. Uh, Janice is trained as a family and marriage counselor and does a lot of work with people who are partially sighted. And Janice also has a visual impairment, but she was born with hers. And yet, even with that, from the very day she was born, has gone through a lot of uh, upper-level training. Uh, graduate school is now, you know, and she works full-time, and she gets around terrifically. She, she's getting ready to have another adventure that I wish I could go with her on. But <laughs> let me uh, bring both of them up, then. You want to come? Okay, Janice is going to use this handheld microphone, and Dr. Takeshita has a, um, has a PowerPoint presentation to give you. So I'm going to turn this over to Janice. Thank you, Judy. I'm going to start us off, and then I'll pass it on to Dr. Takeshita. As my friend and colleague Judy Delgado said, my name is Janice Goldhaber. I'm not going to speak at the podium, if you don't mind, because I'd like to see you a little bit. And uh, the way I can see you a little bit is to move closer. Uh, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, which means that I went to school to be a psychotherapist. I was, uh, uh, I'm going to give away my age here. I'm going to be 60 very soon. And I'm leaving tomorrow for Paris to celebrate my 60th birthday. Sure, make sure I want to make sure you can hear me. I am absolutely thrilled to be doing this. Last time I was there was 15 years ago. I was on sabbatical with my husband, who's here today. So uh, I want to tell you just two minutes about myself so that you know about the Center for the Partially Sighted and why I value low vision rehabilitation so much and why I value helping people learn to cope with macular degeneration. Uh, 60 years ago, almost, I was born very prematurely. Um, the story in my family is 10 weeks. I don't know if I believe that or not, but that's the story. And I was just under three pounds. At that point in time, and even today, uh, very small preemies are put in incubation. And the thinking is that incubation can, uh, the amount of oxygen can destroy or partly destroy the retina. Well, uh, there was probably some luck in my case because there was an outbreak of something in the nursery and I was sent home early. But um, because of the degeneration of the retina, I was diagnosed very early on with something that we used to call retrolental fibroplasia, retinopathy of prematurity. So in my lifetime, I was the geeky one in the LA Unified School System that didn't fit in because I wasn't blind and I wasn't sighted. I was a visually impaired kid that had very thick glasses, walked into things, fell, couldn't read very easily, had trouble learning. But somehow on my own and through a little bit of help, I struggled. And I made it through most of a doctoral program, which I fell out of because I uh, couldn't finish, and uh, two master's degrees. And I ended up about 22 years ago at the Center for the Partially Sighted. 
Um, I had just lost a very prestigious academic <coughs> job, and somebody referred me there. And that's what we're going to talk to you about today. We're going to talk to you about coping with visual impairment uh, from the standpoint of uh, dealing with functional vision loss. And since I'm a psychotherapist, I, want, I will chime in along the way, and we'll talk about coping with the psychological issues of dealing with, the, with vision loss. The Center for the Partially Sighted is a low vision rehabilitation center where we deal with people of all ages. Birth, birth to the oldest old, I ran a group for many years. The youngest person was 80. The oldest person was almost 100. And so in this setting, we do all the things that you can imagine. We deal with independent living skills, mobility. Uh, Dr. Takesh is going to talk to you a lot about some of the bells and whistles and things that we do with people to make it possible to cope with vision loss. Uh, how many of you in this room are uh, visually impaired? I can see hands. Uh, any hands? How many of you have macular degeneration? You can sort of see. How many of you are family members? Some family members. So one of the things that we know in dealing with visual impairment and blindness is that it is a family systems issue. You know, I often deal with people who come into my office because they need some counseling. And one of the first things they say to me is, my daughter just doesn't get it. My husband doesn't get it. They don't think I'm really visually impaired. Well, why is that, I ask. Well, I don't know. I don't understand why it is. Well, part of it is that those of you with macular degeneration have this unusual thing that you do, many. You make great eye contact. Most of you grew up fully sighted. Uh, Dr. Boyer mentioned his mother picking a piece of lint off his clothes. Remember that? Well, one of my favorite stories is I could put a hippopotamus in the middle of the room. And those of you with macular degeneration could walk in and bend down and pick up a crumb on the floor. And the family says, you see? What happened? You can see. I knew all along you can see. Has anybody had this experience besides me? You can see. And then from that point on, nobody believes or understands what you're dealing with. But you would walk so totally into the hippopotamus in the middle of the room. And the reason for that is because macular degeneration is quirky and you, use your, you learn on your own to lose your per, use your peripheral vision and you make good eye contact and you were visual beings all your life. So part of what I do is I run support groups. I see people as individuals. I see people in family systems. And I help people learn all the ways to adapt to dealing with vision loss. Because vision loss is more than just low vision aids. In fact, we could put the best low vision aids on you. There are some amazing things that Dr. Takeshita will talk to you about. When I was growing up, none of this was available. Closed circuit televisions, bioptics, magnification, I mean, the, the, computers that talk. The possibilities are endless. But if you don't feel like you can adapt to your vision loss, if you don't feel like the people around you are understanding what you're dealing with, then all those aids aren't very helpful. Now, he and I represent kind of, it's a funny way to say it, but two ends of a spectrum. I'm a partially sighted person who is not legally blind. And Dr. Bill, it's an amazing experience to have been a low vision optometrist and to have no sight. But we both, in our ways, have learned to adapt with a compl the complicated word of vision and coping. So I want to turn it over to Dr. Bill because he's going to do a PowerPoint presentation. 
And then I want you to think about all the ways that you're frustrated, uh, angry, depressed, all the things that you're not coping with that don't have to do with low vision aids. And at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Bill Takeshita. Thank you very much, Janice. And She deserves that round of applause because she's got a tough day. She's got to go to France tomorrow. Isn't that tough? I guess the first thing here, I just, again, want to commend and thank all of you for showing up to this really, really important event. I think that the Discovery Eye Foundation and Macular Degeneration Partnership has put together a great event here today, and we hope that in coming years that you'll find that this is going to be something that you make a habit of coming to every October. What I wanted to talk to you about, though, is I've been asked to tell my story and it's sort of a very, very interesting story, and I hope that it helps you to think of ways that you could overcome your own vision impairment. You know, ever since I was a kid, I was about six or seven years old, I then had decided, you know what, one day, Dad, I'm going to become an eye doctor. And the reason I was so interested in becoming an eye doctor was that I had an older brother who was one of those good-at-everything kind of brothers, you know, any place you go, you would say, you must be Dave Takesha's brother. Are you as good in baseball as he is? You're Dave Takesha's brother. We want you on our basketball team. And when they picked me and I couldn't hit the ball and I would strike out and all these other things, they were all so disappointed, you know. How many of you ever had an older brother who could just do everything in sports and you really couldn't, you know? Well, that's basically what it was for me. And then one day at school, we had a vision screening. And I, I didn't realize, all of that time, I didn't realize that I wasn't seeing well. And I went to the eye doctors, and I got a pair of glasses. And finally, it changed my life. I could hit that baseball. I could hit those three-point basketball shots. It was something that really changed my life. And as a boy, it really made the world a difference. And I said, you know what? This is something I would love to do. I would love to become an eye doctor one day. So I went on to school, and eventually I made it to UCLA. And at that time, my goal was, you know what, I want to become a retina specialist. Just like Dr. Boyer and others, my understanding of the eye was such that if you could treat the retina, you could fix virtually any problem. So while I was at UCLA, I started to volunteer at the Jewel Stein Eye Institute, and I actually got the opportunity to work with thousands of people and some of the best doctors in the world. And what I realized, though, was I then realized that many people who had different types of eye diseases, especially macular degeneration, there were so many times that the doctor would say, I'm sorry, nothing more could be done. And one day, the doctor that I was working for, he called me up into his office and he said, William, and it was one of those things, you know, when people call you William, you know you're sort of in trouble. I went up into his office and he says, William, I've been watching you, and I've been watching you as I tell a lot of these patients that I can't help them. He said, but you've got to understand that as a surgeon, there's only so much that we could do at this time. But I don't think that you're cut out to be an eye doctor. I don't think that you could become a retina specialist. I want you to go see this man by the name of Sam Janinsky. Sam Janinsky, he founded this place called the Center for the Partially Sighted, and I think you might really enjoy what they do. And up to that time, I never knew anything at all about low vision. 
So I went to meet Dr. Janinsky, and I saw that what they were doing was completely different. Some of the people that I met there, these were patients, and they said, you know, I've been to so many doctors, and every doctor told me nothing could be done, and I just can't believe that I'm able to read again. I met another man who even offered me a ride home. He says, with these glasses, I could drive. You want to hop in? And I said, no, thank you. (laughs) But I realized that this was a field that was something that was going to be unique. And I changed gears, and I went to optometry school. And optometry school differs from medical school in the sense that in optometry school, we only study how is it that you see What part of the brain is going to be involved in vision? How can we create and invent new glasses or contact lenses and low vision aids to help a person to see? And also, how can we work with other professionals such as psychologists, mobility specialists, independent living skills teachers to help people who are visually impaired to go on and to live independently? So I was very, very blessed And when I graduated from school, the Center for the Party decided they even offered me a job. I couldn't believe it. And actually, I remember seeing Janice Goldhaber. She was a patient who actually came in. And I remember her because she was actually a person, when she first came in, she was so quiet. And I remember one day she was leaving and she had these overalls on and she was just talking up a storm. She had so much hope. And I remember her. I remember her to that day. And I said, you know what, this is where I really enjoy working. So for the next 17 years, I had the pleasure of receiving so many referrals from different doctors, such as Dr. Boyer and many of the retina specialists around, and we're able to help these patients. I was able to design specialized glasses so that even people who had their driver's license taken away, I was able to help these people get their driver's license. And the answer is yes, I actually even drove with a lot of these patients. I wanted to make certain that they truly were safe. I met so many different types of movie stars and celebrities and was able to help them. Even people who really could never read, I have other people so that they were able to read scripts and actually go on and make other types of films. And I had this fortune of being able to do something that I loved. And it truly was a pleasure. It really was my hobby. I work six and a half days a week, and when friends ask me, you know, let's go shoot around the golf, you know, I said, well, you know, I really feel like going into work. I got an emergency patient who's only going to be in for a day. I'm going to go in on Sunday, so I'll pass on it. So my life was just everything that I wanted. I got married, and I had two beautiful children, and my career was everything that I wanted. But one day as I was looking at the eye of a patient, I noticed that I had a black spot right in the very center of my vision. And at first I shook my head because I thought, wow, this person has a really dark spot on their retina. But then I realized that when I moved my eye, the spot moved. It wasn't their eye, it was my eye. And I thought it was something that was called central serous retinopathy. A lot of men who were in their 40s, I was about 42 years old at that time. A lot of times men in their 40s, they get a condition when you're sort of a, a type A personality. You could ask my wife. She said, yeah, you're definitely type A. And with this, I said, you know, I just need to take some time off. I took the weekend off. I didn't go into work. And I rested. And it got bigger and bigger. And I thought, you know what, this isn't right. So I then went and... As a doctor, I wanted all the privacy that I could possibly have. I didn't want anybody to know that there might be wrong in my eyes. 
You know, I was an eye doctor. Who's going to want to be seen by an eye doctor who is visually impaired or blind? So I actually went to see some doctors that were not even in the Los Angeles area. I actually even used a fake name. I went to see these doctors and I told them, you know what, I'm having this problem, and I actually asked them to evaluate. The first doctor told me that it was a very rare different type of retinal condition, and I was just shocked. I didn't believe him. I went to another doctor. I went to that doctor anonymously, the same type of thing. When I heard that I had this particular condition that was called cone rod degeneration, I was just shocked because as a doctor myself, I knew this was really very, very bad news. But also it didn't make a lot of sense to me because this is a condition that usually is an inherited type of a condition and nobody in my family, relatives or cousins, nobody had it. But each day it got worse and worse. And I'm certain many of you have had that same experience. You just thought that if you slept a little bit better, maybe if you change your diet, you take a bunch of vitamins, maybe the next morning you'd wake up and you'd see better. But each morning that I woke up, this blind spot got even bigger. It got to the point where I did not even want to wake up because I was afraid to wake up and see that it got worse. And lo and behold, it did get worse. It got to the point where I realized that my vision was so off balance, my left eye was so blurry with a black spot in the middle that I didn't feel comfortable with even being able to examine patients anymore. I made that really, really tough decision, and I said, you know what, I have to retire. I had to give it something that I worked for all of my life, something that I loved. You know, it wasn't just work, but it was my passion. I loved playing, you know, with my patients' eyes and helping them more than playing golf or going to the theater or anything else. And so when I had to give it up, it was something that was very, very difficult. And I went into isolation. I don't know if any of you ever felt that as you develop your vision loss, you went into isolation. But I had so many feelings. I was angry. I was so angry that I put the blame of everything on anybody else. I was angry at the doctors. Why can't these doctors fix this? Why can't they do something? They're able to put a man on the moon. I read all the different research. How come they can't do something to help myself out? I was angry, angry at the fact that people around me, they really didn't understand. A lot of times people would even say to me, Dr. Bill, you're just faking this. You, you look perfectly fine. There is nothing wrong with you. I had even some of my friends say, come on, why are you faking it? What, what's up with this? Why are you doing that? Are you trying to get some insurance money or something? People didn't understand. And it was something that really made me very, very angry. I got tired of people calling. There were a lot of people who were so caring. They called, you know, they wanted to help. They wanted to know how they could help me. Can I drive you someplace? Can I cook something for you? All these things that they were showing this level of love, trying to be caring and helpful, I, I really rejected all of it. And I became so isolated. I changed my telephone number. I didn't want people to call. It even got to the point where when my wife would say, why don't we just go on out? Let's go on out for lunch. I said, no, I really don't want anybody to see me this way. I don't want to see somebody. What if I trip and stumble over a step? What if I can't read the menu or I'm holding it very close? She said, well, you know what? You're a low vision specialist. Go to your clinic and make something for yourself. 
And it was to such a level that mentally I couldn't even go into my own clinic and try to design something for myself because my psychology, my mind state was just so fouled up. So it got to be where days and days I would sit at home and all I could think about is, why me? I felt as though I was the only person that this happened to. Even though every day of my life I would tell patients, this is what you need to do to go ahead and to compensate and to cope. I lost my faith in God. I thought to myself, how can God do this? I save people's vision. I help them to see from throughout the world. And God has done this to me. I lost faith in my family. I lost faith in God. I was just an angry, bitter person. And one day I was sitting in my backyard all alone just trying to think. In reality, I was just feeling sorry for myself. My wife said, come on, let me make you lunch and what would you like? I said, I don't care. Make whatever. It'll, anything was fine. So she makes me this really, it wasn't just a sandwich. She makes me a really nice lunch. She actually went ahead and makes some chicken and some rice and some salad. And I said, chicken? I didn't feel like having chicken. And it wasn't that. I love chicken. But I would just be in a big poop about the whole thing. And I got so angry and I said, you know what? This is something that it shouldn't have happened to me. I even told her once, I said, you know what? It would have been a lot better if something like this happened to you. That's how evil that I became. We were actually putting up some Christmas lights and I dropped a nail as I was nailing it up. And I called her, I said, hey, can you help me find it? And she goes, yeah, here it is. And I was so frustrated that I couldn't find that nail. I said, you know what? This should have happened to you. If this happened to you, I could still be helping all these people with low vision. I could be helping all these people. You're just a housewife. And she didn't get mad at me or anything like that. And within days, she sort of stayed away from me, just let me go ahead and, and vent all this anger. And I said, you know what? Look at this. All of my friends. Where are all my friends? When I need my friends, nobody's there to call. She says, well, remember, honey, you changed the telephone number. Nobody knows our number. Oh, yeah, that was my fault. So during this whole time, it really became so bad that I could not even pursue the type of help that I would tell people every day, this is what you need to do. I used to be the person giving people all the advice, and I couldn't do it. And at the same time, my older brother, you know, Mr. All-Star Athlete, he came to the rescue. He comes over and he says, come on, let's go on out. we got to go out to eat. Let's go grab something to eat. And at the same time, my brother, he unfortunately was going through some medical problems himself. He was having some chest pains, and he went to the doctors three different times. And the doctor said, well, you have indigestion. We're going to give you some different types of antacids. And he went, and three times he went. One day it was so bad, he drove himself to urgent care, and he had a major, major heart attack. He lost 70% of the function of his heart. And it was something that was really devastating to us all. But even with all that, he continued to go through his rehab. And he got to the point where he was able to walk. He was on a heart transplant list. And he didn't think about himself. He was worried about his little brother, Bill. We went out to breakfast and we were talking about different things. And I told him how I lost faith. I told him how I was angry. 
And I told him, I said, you know what? If something happens to me, this is what I want you to do. I actually handed him a paper and it had how I wanted him to handle certain finances. He said, you know, what? what is this? What is this all about? He says, are you seriously thinking of taking your life? And I said to him, you know what? I'm not any good to my family. I'm causing a lot of problems. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm not helping the world. I'm good for nothing. I can't do anything. And I have this life insurance policy. And so if I happen to go from one way or the other, this is what I want you to do. And this is how my kids, my wife, everything will be set. And he then said, you're ridiculous. You are the most selfish SOB in the world. And I was shocked. And I said, well, do you really feel like living? Look at you. You have to take all these medications. You have to go to rehab every day. You can only drink a half a liter of water. You feel dizzy all the time. He said to me, you know what? You are selfish. You're not thinking about if you are not here, how is that going to affect all the other people who love you? They're going to feel terrible. I'm here trying my hardest each and every single day to live this day the best that I can. It's not what it was before, but I want each and every day to live. And it was something that just really, really hit me. It was what I needed to change. I heard what he was saying. My life wasn't nearly as bad as it really appeared to be in my mind, but it was just strictly my mental thought. And unfortunately, my brother passed away very shortly after that. And all I could think of in my mind is here he was each and every single day that he had giving his best, enjoying the best. Even if he could only have a half a liter of water to drink every sip, he told me it was so good. He could only eat certain types of food and it was limited, but he said it was so good. And he enjoyed every part of it. And at his funeral, I just thought to myself, I have to be able to change my attitude. I might think that this issue of being partially sighted with these blind spots in my central vision as being a bad thing. But you know what? There is so much in life to live forward. So at that point, I basically realized that I need to go ahead and change. I had to change my mind. Even though you and I, we may not be able to change the eye condition that we have, we can control how we think. So the first thing I started to do was I then started to go ahead and to change my attitude. And this is something that I think that we can all do. We could control our attitude. We can't control what the doctors tell us. We can't control the disease. We can't control what's happening in the world, but we can control our attitude. The thing that I did was every single morning that I woke up, I would say to myself, what are the things that I'm just so grateful for today? What was great about last night? And, you know, I grew up in the 1970s in a town called Silmar, where there was an earthquake in 1971. And then I moved after I got married to a town called Northridge, and there was an earthquake there. So the point to all of that is you better not follow me wherever I live because <laughs> there's going to be an earthquake coming. But every morning, try to think of what are those things that you're so grateful for. I think every morning when I wake up, I'm grateful that there was no emergency that happened last night. 
I'm grateful that there was no earthquake. I'm grateful that none of my kids woke up in the middle of the night and were sick. I'm grateful I didn't get a call from a family member for some type of emergency. I'm grateful that the water is running and my hot water heater didn't break up. There's so many things that we could be grateful for, and it does change our attitude because we can control our attitude. The same thing is something that I do every night. I try to think about what was I grateful for the day. I'm so grateful that Judy Delgado and the people at Discovery Eye and all of you folks came here today because I think this is just such a fantastic type of event. The next thing that I think is very important to do is that I then learn to communicate. Remember I talked about how I was just, you know, so angry. Everything was within myself. But I then started to learn to communicate. You know, my wife, I would expect my wife to know when I could see something and when I couldn't. For example, we would go to a restaurant or something like that, and she would be kind enough to go ahead and start to read the menu. And I would say, I could read the menu. This is a large print menu. I could read it. And other times, there would be another restaurant where it might be too dark, and I couldn't read the menu, and she wouldn't read it, and I would be sort of angry and say, you know, why aren't you going to read the menu for me? You know, all you ladies out here, clap your hands for a moment. Aren't you guys all glad you're not married to me? <laughs> but it's so important that you communicate. You really need to be able to communicate. So if you are the person who is visually impaired, you want to explain the best that you can to your family and your friends. What can you see? What do you need help with? You might say if you go into a restaurant, open that menu. If you can't read it, you might then ask the waiter, do you happen to have a large print menu? Do you have a menu in Braille? Or you might just go ahead and help, ask for help from whoever's with you. You might want to go ahead and do as Janice and I and my kids and my wife, we were walking down the auditorium in here. You know, Janice was able to say, it's a little dark in here. You know, can, can you give me a little bit of guide? So, you know, that's really something. She's asking me to guide her down here and I can't see anything. But it does show, you know, it is true, the blind can lead the blind. But it's very, very important that you do go ahead and you communicate. You want to find out from others to let them know what you can and cannot see. The next thing that's also going to be very important to do in coping with low vision is to understand and make a list. Make a list of those things that you are able to do and then make a list of those things that you have difficulties doing. It's really important to take this inventory so that you could take attack strategically. If there's certain things that you cannot do or are having difficulties doing, go ahead and try to figure out ways that you could do that. So, for example, when I had low vision, one of the things I had a lot of problems with was I had difficulties with figuring out what color were these socks. I had navy blue, I had dark gray, I had charcoal gray, I had black socks. That was something that was very difficult to do. But I learned of different strategies where I could actually mark the different types of socks. I was able to use safety pins. I would actually categorize them so I would have one shoe box that would have black and the next one would be blue. So for me, I just put it in alphabetical order. I've actually done a lot of different types of podcasts for a, a nonprofit organization called Airs LA. 
And I encourage all of you, if you do use a computer, go to www.airsla.org. And that stands for the Audio Internet Reading Service of Los Angeles. But if you go to airsla.org, I've done a lot of podcasts on how to cope and live with low vision. That goes over a lot of these things. And in fact, Airs LA, they're recording this today. And uh, Mr. Stephen Heller from Airs LA, he's even put together some CDs. So if you don't use a computer, he has some CDs that has some of these podcasts that helps you to live with Airs LA. And I believe that Steve might be here in the back. You can't miss him. He's about seven foot tall. He's probably the tallest guy here today. Steve, are you here today? Oh, there he is. Okay. So it's really important that you take inventory and make a list of those things that you are able to do and those things that you cannot do. Now, once you've found that those things that you cannot do, I think that the next thing you want to do is set some very small goals. Let's say, for example, that you realize some of the things that you're having difficulty with doing is such as something such as cooking. Well, you want to go ahead and make a small goal. You could go ahead and take some cooking classes, or you could go on Airs LA and listen to podcasts that will help you to learn how to cook. But set some very, very small goals. For me, my first goal, my first goal that I had to make for myself was be seen in public and reveal that you have a vision problem. Even though I sent letters to people and people knew that I was retired because of my vision problem, I didn't want people to know that I was visually impaired. I had to go ahead and overcome this mental obstacle. And I actually then said, I have to be able to tell other people that I'm visually impaired. Almost like Alcoholics Anonymous. But when I would go to restaurants, I would then tell the person, oh, can I have a seat that's sort of near the window where there's better lighting where I could read the menu? I have a vision problem. And they would always say, you don't look like you have a vision problem. You know, I said, well, I do. But you want to go ahead and make that small goal. For me, to be able to reveal and disclose that I had a vision problem was really the major goal. Once I accomplished that, it just happened to be that my vision got worse. I then went and started to use different types of visual aids. I went and made appearances at the Center for the Partially Sighted and allowed my doctors to help me. And with these different types of visual aids, I first started out with some very basic things, such as magnifiers. But as my vision progressively got worse, I used more sophisticated things, specialized reading glasses. I even had a pair of glasses that had a miniaturized telescope so I could actually see you know, I was able to see my son when he was at some of his performances in the orchestra by wearing a pair of glasses at a mini telescope. I later learned how to use different types of computers. There's something called a CCTV that you might have seen at the exhibits today. This was a great device that allowed me to take on other types of jobs. One of the things that I started to pursue was I realized, you know what, I'm a doctor. I still have some value. I have some information. So I then started to volunteer my time to teach as a professor. And the schools really enjoyed that. Anything for free, they were happy. And I was so pleased that even though I was blind and I couldn't see, my doctors who were able to see, they would tell me what they saw. They told me about the data from the patient. 
And together, I was able to use my experience and my knowledge to help them to create devices, specialized glasses and visual aids to help people, even those who are legally blind, to be able to read and to write and to do all those hobbies that they wanted to again. I then started to take on some other types of work doing different types of malpractice expert witness work. Unfortunately, it got to be very, very busy, and I couldn't keep up with the reading because I actually went totally blind in 2008. But I learned that there's different types of technology, and with different types of scanners, cell phones, I could use my cell phone and take a picture of something, and it would read it for me. I wouldn't even have to ask somebody if this was a $20 bill or be concerned that somebody was going to shortchange me. I had another device where I could actually place a document right on this particular platform and it will take a picture and in a matter of three seconds it will begin to read. It's something that's called the iPal Solo that was just released. And many of you who have problems with reading your mail or letters you get from friends, you're going to find that you could do this. You could read very well. If you use computers, we now know that there's computer programs that could magnify the screen. When I had vision, I used a program that was called ZoomText, and I was able to go on the Internet and do all those things that I wanted to do. So overall, you could realize that once you take these little steps, step by step, you will then move to the next level where you could go on and to do different types of things. So what you want to do is you want to go ahead and you want to create a team. These are my keys to success in living with low vision. You got to change your attitude because you can change it. You have to realize that you have the power to change your life and to enjoy things. You know what I realized? Whether I had perfect vision or even I'm totally blind, food and dining, it's just wonderful. I don't care if I could see it or not. Many times the food tastes better because you don't see it. You go to some of these sushi bars, you don't want to see some of that sushi. <laughs> But when you just eat it, it's great. Yesterday, I had the privilege. I went to a play. This was at the Kirk Douglas Theater in Culver City. And they have a program. It's called the Center Theater. And they have what's called descriptive video. This was a play that was called Eclipse, talking about the revolutionary war that's going on in Liberia. But you put on these headphones, and there's a live person who's telling you that this person is walking down and she's pointing towards the sunset. So you know everything that is going on. And I thought my days of going to the plays would be over. But these particular types of things are available. So if you set these small little goals, you can achieve any type of hobby or any vocation that you want to. Who would have ever thought that there could be a blind eye doctor? It makes no sense, but that is what I am. I am the blind eye doctor. So after you change your attitude, create your dream team. Create a dream team, and this is very, very important. Don't have the ego that I had and try to do everything yourself because you're going to end up sitting at home feeling sorry for yourself. But you want to first find an ophthalmologist who specializes in your particular condition. A general ophthalmologist is helpful, but if you have macular degeneration, you want a doctor who specializes in macular degeneration. You deserve, you deserve to have the best that's available to you. 
in all the 20 some odd years that I've been working with people with low vision, there has never been a time as there is now where there is so much research. And this is the only time that I can recall since the development of Avastin and Lucentis where we're actually seeing a lot of our patients coming back to us and they're donating their glasses and visual aids because their vision has improved. So you want to have an ophthalmologist who's going to specialize in your condition and you want to be aware of all the different clinical trials. Just be aware. Educate yourself about the clinical trials that are available. The next thing is that you deserve to be seen by a low vision specialist. Most low vision specialists are optometrists. In L.A. here, we have different optometrists who specialize in low vision. At the Center for the Partially Sighted, we're, we're now pleased to announce that we have changed our model. We used to just have one office over there in Brentwood, and now we've realized we need to be closer to where the patients are. We have one in the Eagle Rock, Pasadena area, the San Fernando Valley. We're going to be opening in November in Culver City. We have one in Eagle Rock, and we're in San Luis Obispo. But you want to go see a low vision optometrist because he or she can develop glasses to improve your vision. It's not going to cure your vision, but if it can improve your vision 20% or 30%, that's going to be a world of difference. Most importantly for me, I used to think that the low vision optometrist was the most important person. Why? I guess it was again my ego because I was a low vision optometrist. But what I realized the most difficult thing for me with my vision impairment was my emotional state, my emotional state. And Janice and her staff of therapists, it was never where I scheduled an appointment because I didn't want to lay down on some sofa and talk to them that way. But Janice and her staff, they would just once in a while say, how are things going, Bill? How's the family? How are the kids doing with it? And just to be able to have some conversation and take a lot of these ideas and suggestions was so extremely important. I then started to go to a couple of these support groups, and I met other people who were in the same predicament as me. You know, a young person with a family, and I realized that other people were in a similar situation, and they taught me things. So you could learn the most by attending some of Judy's different types of support groups that they have at the Macular Generation Partnership. Or you might attend some of ours. Yes, let's applaud those. <laughs> and at the Center for the Partial Sighted, we have different support groups. Janice Season has a program where people will call you. You don't have to come out. If transportation is difficult, she'll have her staff call you and just talk. Because we as doctors know a lot of our patients, they're intimidated to talk to us. Or many times, you know, they forget about those things and they remember it at home. At this point in time, I say the thing that I presently have the most difficulty with is mobility. I don't drive anymore, but I've learned of different ways to organize transportation. There's different ways that you could get access services to drive you from doorstep to doorstep. There's other services where you might find that there's carpooling. You can have other friends and family get together. Or you might just host people at your own home. It's a really nice type of thing to be able to do is to have people come to your home. You could cook them a meal and they'll be surprised. You made this? I can't believe it. You know, it's just a great feeling to be able to do something that others appreciate. 
We have independent living skills teachers. And these are folks that will teach you. This is how I learned to cook. I could actually make a whole lot more than tuna sandwiches. You know, I could actually make some teriyaki chicken and it's, and it's not raw, believe it or not. But if I could learn to do these things, you can too. So overall, the steps to coping with low vision are, number one, try to change and control your attitude. Number two, create a dream team. Go to a place such as the Center for the Partially Sighted or to the Macular Degeneration Partnership and access all the help that they're able to give you. And number three, go ahead and utilize all of these different types of low vision devices and technology. A lot of times it's very scary with all the new technology, but what you'll soon see is that there are technology that's available for you that could really improve your life and make things so much easier. So I hope that from hearing my personal story, you'll realize that all of you are probably in a much better position than I am. You too can change your attitude, volunteer someplace, give a helping hand, help some children. If you're great in math, tutor some kids in math. If you're a great storyteller, volunteer at Children's Hospital. Go visit the kids. Make yourself active, and you're going to realize that you too are extremely important. So thank you very much for listening, and at this time we'll go ahead and open it up to questions. Questions, comments, concerns, ideas, struggles, what would you like to ask? When I heard you at, um, at, at Judy Delgado's, I thought it was most interesting is when you were cited and you gave people appliances, you know, helped them, that you understood better at the time you weren't, well, you were sure that they were one way, but once you had this problem, you were able to help them better because you realized the real situation. And I would like to say to you, you're not blind, you're just a little handicapped. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, and that is so, so truthful. When I was a blind eye doctor, a lot of times we think about what can a person read on the eye chart or what can they actually see on some of our tests. But after I became visually impaired myself, I learned that blindness or being partially sighted, it's really not what you perform on your test. It's actually are you able to do those things that you want to do or not. When I was sitting at home and feeling sorry for myself, my vision was actually quite good. My vision was 2070, but I was actually paralyzed. I couldn't do anything because mentally I did not know how. But after going through the training and the program and now as a person who can't even see the sun, I could do virtually everything that I need to do because I have developed the strategies. I've been taught the solutions. So that's something that all of you can do, too, with a little bit of help. Next question. We have, another, we have another question, but I just wanted to add one thing. You know, when it's happening to you, when you lose a little bit of sight, it feels devastating. We, I used to hear interns talking about people wanting magic glasses, and it really offended me because I think whatever amount of sight you lose, you want the magic that will give it back to you. But I think the moral of the story is that 
to not disregard the feelings as a, as a therapist. I would say not to disregard the feelings or your experience, to embrace it, to do something with it, and then to try to move on in some way and to build a parallel to experience to the one that you were having that gives you possibility and hope. Here's a question. Hi. Um, thank you for speaking about your experiences. I'm here in support of a, a friend who has severe um, AMD, dry AMD, and it's just it's been really hard just watching her and her eyesight deteriorate. And you know she can't even do the crossword puzzle anymore, the jumble, something that she loves doing each week. Um, I've noticed at your center for the partially sighted there are visual aids technology technological visual aids that she can use perhaps to be able to do some of these things. What kind of other services, I would say recreational services, does your center offer? Um, I know you have counselors, it's great counselors, I'm optometrist, but in terms of recreational activities, do you offer anything else? Yeah, the question is what kinds of services are available to all of you? Well, you know what? You're very, very fortunate here in Southern California, too, because we also have the Braille Institute, and I'm also the uh, consulting director of low vision at the Braille Institute. And the Braille Institute has many, many different types of recreational classes. Now, at Braille Institute, there's the main location in Los Angeles, but there's also different types of satellite locations. So you could sign up for a wide variety of classes, whether it's going to be cooking, is there's even a baseball class. I know the Dodger great Wes Parker, he has a class just on baseball. So there's so many different types of things for recreational and also independent living skills training at Braille Institute. At the Center for the Partially Sighted, we have different types of classes as well. Well, we do have different types of lectures where we have people who are nutritionists. We also have different types of cooking classes. And we even have different types of programs where some folks will get together and there's things like a book club. But for your friend with macular degeneration, the first thing that I would suggest is that, number one, there are specialized types of low vision glasses. And with these glasses, a lot of our patients are able to use these glasses to do a large print crossword puzzle. Other times what we'll do is we'll use what's called a video magnifier. And this is advice that actually a person could put a crossword puzzle on this platform and see it in large print on a computer screen. So we have many different ways. Uh, one of the things that we're very proud of with our technology program is that we have the largest selection of video magnifiers and technology. And the reason that we chose to do it this way was because we wanted you, the consumer, to be able to see side by side, sort of like the Pepsi challenge. Do you like Coke or Pepsi? Because when a person comes to your home and shows you one of these machines, you don't have that ability to compare brand A with brand B with brand C. So at our location, we have all the top brands, and you're not going to have any type of pressure to buy anything because these are things that you will be able to purchase through the vendor themselves. So your friend could also come to the center and see whether or not uh, she could do these crossword puzzles underneath a, a closed-circuit television. And we often have rental programs where we could rent these to people. And other times we have a lot of folks who will donate them to the, our center, and we will just donate them to the person that they say, for example, I want to donate the CCTV for a person who enjoys doing crossword puzzles. 
I mean, we get some real specific donations that way. So you could call us and we could assist in that way. Dr. Bill, thank you. Uh, I know a lot of people talk about public speaking being fearful because all the people facing back at you. I would imagine being blind, it's turned into a big advantage at moments like this. <laughs> yeah. um, what I wanted to ask, I suffer from a condition, I don't know the technical name, it's a form of strabismus, a vertical strabismus where my vision separates eye to eye vertically. And they, it's, it's a very rare condition and I had to search far and wide and I found some doctors that were therapists in this and for several thousand dollars they could put me through six or eight months of training to hopefully re-exercise my eyes. My insurance was unwilling to pay for that because insurance won't pay for vision, what they call therapy. So then I found another doctor several years later who would do a surgery on it and would maybe sever some muscles and try to rebalance the eyes. Uh, I said, all right, well, I'd like to schedule that in a few months. I called back and they said, we no longer take your insurance. And, and so it brings me to the health care issue. Is there a push in this push for perhaps single-payer national health care to... To, uh, to get people back on their feet visually when they have re reparable conditions? Well, yeah, that's a really a difficult one. I, I personally don't know, you know, at what particular level that the, the House is voting. You know, there's many different types of plans that uh, President Obama and the House has actually put forth. But in California in particular, we're really faced with a real medical problem. Recently, State of California has disallowed Medi-Cal. Before, Medi-Cal would actually provide glasses for people who had vision problems, but all those folks who do have Medi-Cal can no longer receive glasses through that. Now, there's a lot of different types of smaller organizations that do provide that type of assistance. Now, one of the things, just uh, in your case in particular, one of the things that will be very important just to help you so that you could function would be to have a, a doctor actually consider using what's called a prism. Now, with a prism lens, we could actually eliminate double vision in many cases. Now, the things to be concerned about in some cases, if the double vision is something that's a little bit more severe, eye muscle surgery along with glasses can eliminate the double vision. But if you're having problems where you can't even do your work, sometimes we could even recommend that we're going to use a frosted lens to kind of cloud up that eye. So um, <clears throat> you could go ahead and give me uh, a call, and I, I could help you with this uh, personally. But in terms of with the insurance, Medicare is actually one of the best insurances if you do have low vision because Medicare Part B does allow you to be able to see most eye care professionals unless your Medicare has been assigned to an HMO. But if you do have an HMO, you could also request to be seen by a low vision specialist. Many of the HMOs now do have low vision specialists. Uh, in your case, they should have also a strabismus person. And if they do not offer that, then they are required to actually help you to uh, receive that. So we do get referrals from other HMOs where the patients are referred to the center. So, yeah, give me a call. And by the way, you, you have a great speaking voice. <laughs> We're about to stop. I think my card is floating around. So if you have questions about resources in the community, you can call me and I'll point you in the right direction. Uh, and I'm going to turn it back over to Judy. Thank you very much. And thanks, Dr. Brown. <clears throat> Thank you.